Barashith bara Elohim et hashamayim ha et ha eretz, vaha eretz hat ha tavu bavahu, ha hoshek el panecha tahom varuak Elohim marhapet al peni hamayim. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form and void. And the Spirit of God moved upon the face of the waters. Genesis chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. Today we're going to start a series called Big Ideas. We're going to be going through the scriptures doing uh, what is called biblical theology. Now you would say, isn't all theology biblical? One would hope. But biblical theology is a very specific field of theology. And what it is, is it's the study of what did the Bible, what did the biblical authors believe that fueled what they wrote. Now we know that the scriptures are the word of God. They're inspired of God. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. The Apostle Paul said that. But he did it through men and women who wrote in history using languages that everybody else spoke to convey ideas that were in many ways bigger than the words that they were writing. And so we want to take this time this fall, and I'm not sure how long we're going to take doing it, but we want to talk about the big ideas of Scripture, the things that fueled the people of the Bible, the authors of the Bible. Now, it's easy to do that in the New Testament because we have the Gospels and we have the records of the Apostles and we can kind of get some character of them. But then there's, there's fundamental things in the Bible that we really do not know who the first person was that said these things. Genesis is, is generally taught that this is a book written by Moses. Um, but Moses, if Moses was the author, he somehow constructed this from stories that were being told. Um, God did not, nowhere in the Bible does it say that God just beamed to Moses uh, the book of Genesis. He said, Let me tell you how I created the world. It started on a, it was a dark and, well, infinite nothing. In Genesis chapter 1, which is one of the masterpieces of ancient Near East literature, a tremendous uh, literary work that I literally could and have spent years studying. Just this one chapter. But Genesis 1 has some of the core big ideas that drive the whole Bible. And if you get those big ideas in your head when you start, then as you read the Bible, you can always go back to those big ideas. When something sounds like it's not quite right, you go back to the big idea and then you ask yourself, how does this fit in to the big idea? We do not know how old Genesis 1 is. We don't even know what the original language was that it was written in. You say, well, it's in English. Um, or if you're a seminary student, you go, well, it's in Hebrew. But the fact of the matter is that this probably well predates. Hebrew as a language only dates to about 1000 B.C. Um, and this probably comes from much, much longer before that. In fact, when I read Genesis 1, the way that I read it in my mind is an old man 
in early Bronze Age or Paleolithic uh, Middle East, an old man at a fire with his grandchildren and great nieces and nephews all gathered around, and they say, Grandfather, tell us again how Yahweh created the world. And he says, Barashith bara Elohim. He says, in the beginning, God created. And he starts to tell them the story. And there is a power to a story when you know what it means. So let's talk about what the big ideas of Genesis chapter 1 are. I'm going to read a little bit further in English. I would keep reading in Hebrew, but I figure you guys want me to read it in English. Um, Besides the fact that it sounds like I'm trying to clear my throat. It's one of the reasons I loved learning Hebrew is you get to go, ha, all the time. Um, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, right there is a big idea. You say, well, the big idea is the beginning. That's not it. The big idea is the heavens and the earth, that God created the heavens and the earth. The reason that it's such a big idea is that the Bible was written in a world where people believed the gods were a part of creation. That they lived somewhere in creation. The Greeks, they lived up on Mount uh, Olympus, right? Uh, the Romans, they lived somewhere, you know, you couldn't go, but it was, it was here on earth. The Babylonians believed that their gods lived in their temples. Uh, that Marduk dwelled in the temple in Babylon, and so whoever controlled Babylon controlled Marduk. Um, there was a practice among the Sumerians, I've told this story because it's one of my favorite things of the ancient world. There was a practice of the Sumerians that they would carry around little images of their household gods. All these cultures had household gods. And whenever they were going to do something that they knew the god or the ancestor would, un- would not approve of, they would either stick them in a bag or cover their eyes. That way the god wouldn't know that they were doing something they weren't supposed to do. How convenient. A pocket god. Right? Um, how, how awesome that you could do that. Um, and and the, the scriptures are a response. The Hebrew Bible is a response to that. And the worldview of the ancient Hebrews is alien to the rest of the ancient world. Now that's an important point that I'm going to drive, drive home again and again and again. What they believed about their God, nobody else believed. The Hebrews believed that their God, in the beginning, created Shamayim Ha'eretz, the heavens, too. Uh, Hebrew has a, a form. They have three numbers in their language. Something is singular, something is plural, or something is dual. They have words that are duals. Um, heavens is a dual. There are always two of them. All right? That's why it's heavens, not heaven. Um, there are always two of them. And they believe that God created the earth, the sky, and the place where the stars go. But he's not a part of any of those. That's a big idea. We call that in theology, we call that the transcendence of God. That God is not a part of the created order. He is the creator of the created order. And when you read through the Bible, anytime somebody forgets that, they stumble into apostasy. 
Anytime somebody forgets that, we go to the book of Exodus. Moses is up on Mount Sinai. He's getting the 15, oops, 10 commandments. He's getting all of the, that was a Mel Brooks reference. And uh, the, he's receiving from God. And while he's down there, the people go to Aaron. They say, Aaron, make us a God so that we can know who is our God. And Aaron, he, he later explains to Moses, he just dropped some gold in a mold and it turned into a golden calf. I don't know what happened. Um, but he, he takes this golden calf and when it's finished, he lifts it up and he shows it to the people of Israel and he says, behold, Yahweh, the Lord, your God who brought you out of Egypt. And you know that's going downhill. As soon as you make God part of your, the created order, you've got an issue. As soon as God is like us, we're wandering into dark paths. So, Barashith bara Elohim, Shamaim Vacha Eretz. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then in verse 2, but the earth was without form and void. Now, in the 1800s, there was a, guy, a bunch of guys who made a big deal about the space between chapter 1 and, ver, chapter one, one and ver, verse 2. They said, well, see, there was a creation, and then it had to be destroyed, and that's why it's void. All right, if you've ever heard that, if you believe it, you're welcome to believe it, but you're wrong. Um, uh, chapter 1 and verse 2 fits grammatically with chapter 1 and verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was without form, and it was void. This is another one of my favorite Hebrew phrases, tahu vavahu. Just rolls off the tongue, tahu vavahu. Is your room clean? Tahu vavahu. All right, um, but it, this, this, it was without form, it was void, it was empty, it was destitute. What it means is there was no life. There was no movement. It was dead. And the Spirit of God, uh, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the wa- face of the waters. Now let me paint this picture for you, because in English... We don't really have a way to describe it, but I want to I give you what this means in Hebrew. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Bam! Or bang! Anyway, um, He created the heavens and the earth. And the earth was empty, it was, it was formless, and it was void, and it was dark, and there was an abyss. The Hebrew word um, is tahom. The, the emptiness, the deep dark of the ocean where it's so low that you, you, there's no light gets into it. And later on in Hebrew literature, this would become the word for uh, the darkness of death. The deep primeval sea, there was nothing. But then, the Hebrew word ruach, it means spirit or breath or wind. But then, God breathed and the water rippled and life began. See, chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, it's really the story of the creation. Everything else is packed in. It, we're going to get details what God created on this day and that day. But, but in chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, we just get this big idea. God, the transcendent God, creates uh, this empty void universe and then he breathes and it begins to ripple and it begins to come to life 
that begins to move and the water begins to slosh back and forth because God gives life to dead things. People read the New Testament and they see Jesus and they see the resurrection and they go, well, this, I mean, this kind of comes out of left field. No, it doesn't. God gives life. God is the life giver. God is the one who breathes life. We'll see in chapter 2, he breathes life into dirt and it becomes us moving dirt. That, that word hover, it means to move, to ripple, to stir. It is the life-giving moment of the Spirit of God taking what is, uh, what is the chaos of nothingness and turning it into the order of all things. Now you can sit and debate about the science of creation and billions of years and six days and intelligent design and all these different theories. I'm not here to debate you on that. I have an opinion about it. It's probably wrong. It doesn't matter. What you need to understand is that when the authors of the Hebrew Bible sat down to write, what is God to the universe? God is the one who gives motion. God is the uh, what Aristotle would call the prime mover. God is all that makes the universe move. The Apostle Paul, later in Colossians, he will say that Jesus is the sustainer of all things, the creator of all things. Without him, nothing can be. And then he begins to detail, the author of Genesis begins to detail the process. I'm not going to get into too much but I just want you to see the poetic shape of this. And some of you have heard me do this before. Um, if you have, I apologize. If you haven't heard this, this is, for me, how to understand Genesis 1. God said, let there be light. And there was light. And God saw the light. And it was good. God separated the light from the darkness. And he called the light day and the darkness he called night and there was evening and there was morning the first day. The Hebrew world is a world of twos. There are two heavens and then there's heaven and earth. There is light and there is dark. There is day and there is night. And you will see pairs like that all through the Hebrew scriptures. It is a world where things happen in twos. And God said, on the second day, God said, let there be an expanse, verse 6, in the midst of the waters. Mayim, waters, is also a duel. All right? There's two waters. Um, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. He's talking about the atmosphere, separating the rain from the, the rivers and the ocean. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse, and it was so. And God called the expanse heaven, singular, and there was evening and there was morning the second day. And then God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let dry land appear. And it was so. And God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together, he called the seas. And God saw that it was good. So in the first three days, the first three days of this, we get light and darkness. We get the domain of light and we get the domain of darkness. Day and night. And then the second day we get the division of the water, the sky, dividing uh, the heavens, the, the, the place where the birds and now the airplanes live, all right, from us. 
And then on the third day, from the sea. And then the third day, we get the sea and the dry land. All these pairs. Twos, 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 twos. So those first three days, the symmetry of Genesis 1 is that now he will populate those realms that he creates. God creates a space. God fills that space. God creates a, 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 a person. He fills that purpose, person with a purpose. Whatever God creates, it has a function in creation. There is no waste in God's work. And then in verse, so now in verse 11, God said, let the earth sprout, uh, let the earth, uh, let, uh, did it? yeah, verse 11, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, fruits, trees, bearing fruit, all these things all right, on the earth, all right, this is still the third day. And it was so, the earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seeds according to their own kind, trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its own kind. God saw it was good, and there was evening and there was morning the third day. So he creates day and night. He creates the, the sky, uh, dividing the waters from the waters below, and then he creates the earth, and then he fills the earth with vegetation. And then on the fourth day, Verse 14, he says, God says, let there be lights in the expanse of the heaven to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day, the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. There was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. So on the first day, God creates light, separates it from darkness. On the fourth day, God turns that light, that day, into the sun. And in the darkness, he gives light, the moon, and the stars. There's still no void. Even in the darkness, God fills it with something. Something habitates, something dwells. And then in verse 5, uh, I'm sorry, verse 30, uh, 20. And God said, let the water, the, wow, my eyes are getting bad. And God said, let the waters swarm with swarms of living creatures. Let birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with, the, with which the waters swarmed uh, according to its kind and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful, multiply, fill the waters in the seas. Let birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. He fills the two waters. He fills the expanse. He fills the waters above with the birds. He fills the waters below with fish and whales and porpoises and other things I don't eat. I don't eat porpoises either, just to make that clear. He fills it with living things. See, at every step, God is filling things with motion, with action, with being. It goes to tell then, if in the first day he creates day and night, and then, or light and day, and then the fourth day he fills it with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the fifth day, or the second day, he creates the waters and he separates them with the expanse, and then he fills them with the birds and the fish. Then guess what he's going to do on the sixth day? Since on the third day he created the earth, on the sixth day he's going to fill the earth, right? Makes sense. It's what he does. Verse 24, God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kind. Livestock, creeping things, beasts of the earth according to their kind. 
And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth according to their kind, the livestock according to their kind, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind, and God saw that it was good. So God throws this process, day and night, He creates sun, moon, and the stars. Two waters, separates the sky, right? He creates birds and fish. Third day, He creates the dry land. Sixth day, He creates animals. And then, After all of that, God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. And let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the heavens, over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth, every tree with seed in its fruit. Uh, You shall have them for food, and to every beast of the earth, to every bird of the heaven, to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for you, plant for food, and it was so. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good, and the evening, and there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. So God creates light, distinguishes it from darkness, first day. The fourth day, he fills the sky with the sun, the moon, and the stars. And the second day, he separates the waters. I know this is review. And then on the fifth day, he fills the waters, he fills the sky with birds and the waters with fish. And then the third day, he creates their earth, and on the sixth day, he creates all the living things. But once all of that is created, that domain is created, then he says, well, now I want to put my image in the center of this. Now, if you've studied ancient Near East culture... That is what a God does when he creates a temple. When God makes a temple, when a God makes a temple in the ancient Near East, um, of course, he has people make it for him, but we won't get into that. They make the temple, and then at the end, they make an image, and that image represents that God. And that image goes into that temple, and when people want to worship God, they have to go inside the temple, they've got to pay the priests, they've got to slaughter a lamb, they've got to do whatever they've got to do, and then eventually they get to talk to the, to the image of the God. And, and once a year or so, or in case of war, you might take that image of the God, and you might put it on a cart, and you might wheel it out around and tell everybody your God is greater than everybody else's God. People will try to do this, by the way, with the Ark of the Covenant in 1 Samuel. It wind, winds up very bad for everybody. But when God creates the temple of creation, he doesn't let us make an image. He makes us the image. He says, this, by the way, is the reason why we are commanded not to make graven images of God. The temple already has the image of God. And any image that we would make would be less. It would just be our version 
let's be honest, of us. But God creates his temple and he puts in it his image. So there are some big ideas going on here. All of creation is God's temple. You say, would God be an environmentalist? Would God be worried about the ecology? Well, he's the one who created it, so probably. We shouldn't abuse the temple of God. And God creates an image. And he puts it in the middle of the temple. And he says, you're going to have dominion over this temple. You're going to be stewards. You're going to be my stewards serving me in my temple. What is the purpose of mankind? The purpose of mankind is to be in the temple of God telling others who God is. People read this and I think sometimes they skip over this. I just want to bump up on this one. In verse 27 it says he created the image of God. He created them. Male and female he created them. Man is not the image of God and woman an afterthought. Male and female he created them. In the scriptures there is there is an equality of position before God for men and women. That, by the way, hold that there, should be the reason that we should find the oppression of women abhorrent. Not because women's rights and all that stuff. Not because of politics in the 60s and feminism and all those things. We should find the oppression of women in places like, oh, I don't know, Afghanistan. We should find that reprehensible because it is taking the image of God and making it subservient to the image of man. Step back. See, a Christian should be motivated by the big ideas of the Bible. Our politics, our, our methodology, our philosophy, our way of thinking of the world... We do not bring that to the Bible and then say the Bible believes what I believe. We're supposed to go to the Bible and say, okay, I, I just recognize right up front, I probably have a messed up view of this. So what does the Bible say I should believe about this? Okay, that's what the Bible says. This is what I believe. My grandfather is Italian, or was Italian. Now he, he'll be eternally Italian. Um, he had a particular view of women. It wasn't malicious or mean, but it was wrong. And, and it, it some had an effect on the way that a lot of my family thinks. And, and we, uh, my wife and I, we grew up in a tradition where you know, your, women's job was basically to pursue the ever-elusive MRS degree. Think about that for a second. Your entire purpose as a woman was to work enough to be able to provide for yourself until you could find a husband to provide for yourself. Then you just have babies. I grew up in a tradition where men were shamed if their wives worked. Can't you provide? No! Because the cost of living is such that if we don't both work, we both starve. 
And, and we, we have this cultural view so many times of so much of what's going on, but we need to come to the Scriptures to the big view. God didn't create two separate human beings. He created human being, which was male and female, created he them. This, by the way, is the foundation of marriage. The foundation of the covenant of marriage is that if you're married, God created you to be paired with that person. Now, people always talk about, they're like, well, what if I was in a marriage before and, and then that didn't work out or there was abuse or there was whatever. Now I'm married. Is it wrong that I'm married to the person that I'm married to? No. The marriage union that you are in is the marriage union you are in. You honor that as if God created it because he did. Uh, not everybody agrees with me on that one. That's okay. But, but God created us, when we come together as male and female, we come together as one. That does not mean we agree all the time. It does not mean that we are on the same page all the time. Sometimes my wife and I, I'm in the introduction, she's on chapter 14. We are often on different pages. But God created us to be um, one. That's a big idea. Every time this gets violated in the Bible, by the way, people talk about the Old Testament. They say, well, the Old Testament, people marry lots of wives. That's true. Let me ask you a response question to that. Does it ever work out? And the answer to that is no. One of my favorite books of all time as a kid was Around the World in 80 Days. Now, not, not, not a lot of people my age love Jules Verne. I've read that book about 75 times. I love that book, and one of my favorite moments in that book is they are driving through Utah, and a passport two, who's a French servant of Phileas Fogg, if you don't know, they're trying to get across the world in 80 days. Today, that sounds like a big deal. Back then, they were on trains and at one point on a sled with a sail. It's awesome. Elephants. Um, but uh, at one point, not elephants with sails. That's how that does not work. <laughs> it was an elephant in India. Um, but anyway, they're, they're on this bus, and passport two, he got delayed, and he, or uh, this train is leaving, and passport two, he gets on the train, he's in the caboose, and he sees this man come running along, and the man comes running, and he jumps on the train, the very last thing, he jumps in, and he says, sir, are you a Mormon? Now, if you know anything about Mormons, they're, they're uh, 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 polygamists. Um, they, they were. And uh, the man jumps in, he says, are you a Mormon? The guy stands up, and passport two says to him, you have how many wives do you have? And he says, one. It's more than enough. And then he just walks off. It's, my, it's just a great moment. Just, just tells you. Just, just for me, I'm like, even people who have the ability and option, why would they? Anyway, um, this, this is the fundamental idea. Male and female, he created them to be together. See, here's the thing. I keep bringing up these pairs. And here's another pair, right? So day and night, light and dark you know, heaven and, and earth, the two waters, the two seas, all of these things. Then God creates man, male and female. But the big idea is these pairs, they always work together. Different, but one. Because if you come out of Genesis 1 with any one idea, it should be this, that God creates things to work together. So when things don't work together, what is the problem? Is it God? Is it the order He created? Oh, God really messed up on us. Or is it our sin? Is it that we as broken human beings bring discord into what God created for harmony? See, the 
big ideas of order out of chaos, the big ideas of God giving life, they don't really matter if God doesn't give life and order for a reason. If He doesn't do it for a purpose, if you don't have a function, there are, there are days when you struggle with your purpose in this whole shebang. I have spent my life, and I, I, I want to share with you just a personal note on this. I have spent my whole life since being called into the ministry fighting for an ideal of what the church should be. Fighting against uh, traditional inertia, fighting against uh, contemporary rejection of traditional inertia, fighting against belief systems that are antiquated and not based on the Bible, but people act like they are, fighting against opinions, fighting against uh, the, the concepts, faulty concepts of the church. When I, was, when, when I finally gave in after God kept saying, I really want you to be a pastor, and I kept going, you've got the wrong guy. I do not want that gig. I know what it means. And finally coming to the point of saying, okay, God, I guess I'll fight. And I have spent my entire adult life fighting. That's who, I'm, who I am. So I've been called to be. I don't like it some days. This week I got to a point, one of the days this week, where I was just so tired of fighting about everything. You say, you fight in the church and stuff? I'm not, it's not like fighting like bicker, 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 bicker. All right? Just constantly fighting for this is what God's vision is for us. This is God's purpose. Let's not overcomplicate it. Let's keep it simple. Let's engage with people. Fighting against the insanity that says, well, well you know, if you're a Christian over here and you worship here on Sunday morning, you dare not hang out with people that worship over here on Sunday because you might wind up worshiping over there on Sunday and then who knows what happens. Then we won't have it. That is ridiculous. Dealing with the people arguing about, well, you know, we, we have all these theological controversies we have to sort out before we know whether you're a good enough Christian to be our pastor. I'm probably not. It's virtually guaranteed. One time in my entire pastoral ministry, I sat down with somebody, Greg, B, Greg Jones and I went to somebody's house. I was sitting across from the father of the household. He said to me, he said, how is it that you are right about everything? I went, this guy's not going to last six weeks. Because the second he finds out some loopy thing that I have to say, he's out the door. It happened. I spent my life fighting. It's hard. My wife will tell you there are days where I just sit there and I say, I just wish I didn't have to do this. Just, just if I could just not do this. I'm so tired. I'm so tired of constantly putting it out there. I'm so, t you guys, I mean, I get it. You guys think that Sunday mornings, Eric loves to talk, all right? I am so exhausted on a Sunday afternoon. I sometimes sit on the couch and just stare out the window 
Nicole and I were talking about how much joy my ridiculous ball of chaos, Wallace, my dog, brings to me. Because you never know what that nut job is going to do. I, I mean, the other day he swallowed a whole roll of toilet paper. I, he's only the size of a roll of toilet I don't even know how he did it. Made an interesting couple of walks. But he brings me joy because he is chaos incarnate. If you know my dog, you know that I am not exaggerating. My wife's dog, beauty and old soul incarnate. She loves everyone as long as they're Mark Byron. But she, she's in love with Mark Byron and his couch. Um, my Wallace, on the other hand, some mornings he wakes up and I go, oh, it's going to be a day. His little head pops up. Love that chaos. Because I spend my life fighting. It's, it's real. It's what I am. And when God calls you to be what you are called to be, there are days that you don't feel like being what he called you to be. And if you don't know that God creates everything for a purpose, everything is unified, everything is brought together, everything functions together, how many times did we just read, and it was good? If you don't know the reason that things sometimes don't work is because of sin. If you're not willing to admit that, you're going to have a hard time. There has never been, there has never been a situation in which God's people were not accomplishing God's purposes that there wasn't sin getting in the way. I'm not talking about big sins. I'm not talking about craziness. I'm just saying that there is always sin. If God's people are not doing God's thing, there is sin somewhere in the system. And we've got to purge it. We've got to clear it. We've got to work it. That's not fun some days. In fact, it is much easier, and we'll talk about it next week, it is much easier to just listen to the snake. It is much easier to just listen to the voice that tells you what you really want to hear. We'll talk about the thud next week. Join me in a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, as you have called us as your church, walk in your ways to be your people to serve the purposes of your word we are fully aware that that means sacrifice we will struggle we will fight for what you have called us to be may we glorify you may your praise be on our lips and our hearts May your purposes be chosen over our own desires. 